In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hildegard Bingen was a medieval abbess, a writer, a composer, and polymath. Today, we're speaking to Michael Marder about what parts of her philosophy are relevant today and what the teachings of an eminent medieval woman can teach us about our relationship with the natural world. Welcome to Future Imperfect. My name is Michael Marder, and I'm Iker Basque Research Professor in Philosophy at the University of the Basque Country, Vitoria Gasteiz, Spain. And Green Mass is one of the most recently published books of mine, but it continues the line of thinking that uh, started with plant thinking, published in 2013, where I tried to develop a philosophy of vegetal life, a philosophical way of thinking about and with plants. Now, you're going to have to expand on that because I'm desperately trying to think about the philosophy of plants and I am right now struggling a little bit. So would you help me with what you mean? Yes, and you are not alone in that, Jason. I think that uh, most of the tradition of Western metaphysics, of Western philosophy ever since Plato is struggling to think philosophically about plants. And I think that for me, this was one of the most interesting challenges for undertaking this sort of work because plants have been really sidelined in the history of Western philosophy, at least. The animals uh, have appeared somewhere on the margins of the philosophical tradition, usually to demarcate humans from other animals and to say that we are better animals because we're the rational ones or the political animals, the way that Aristotle defines the human, for instance. But plants are somewhere at the very bottom of philosophical concerns and perhaps only when philosophy is uh, barely distinguishable from natural science when philosophers are doing the, the kind of work that later on scientists would undertake. That's when they are dealing with plants. But speaking philosophically, very little has been really in place, has been said about plants in Western tradition, even though Aristotle, who is the key figure, the key player here, and who has given us much of the language to talk about philosophy and philosophical concepts such as matter, 
and form and so on, are Aristotelian inventions. But in the case of plants, uh, he did recognize that plants had a kind of soul, which is not what we tend to associate with the word soul within the Judeo-Christian tradition, this realm of interiority filled with desires, intentions, thoughts, inclinations, but rather the soul understood as a principle of vitality, an animating principle. And so for Aristotle, everything that was alive had at a minimum what he called the vegetal soul, tothreptikon, which is the capacity for nourishment and reproduction. And this is the kind of soul that plants had without any other additions, according to Aristotle. Then you had to add sensation to this base to get animal vitality, the animal soul. And then on top of the plant and animal vitality, in order to get to the human, you had to add the capacity for thinking for the exercises of rationality. So what was really interesting to me was that at the basis of this edifice, that is the principle of vitality in the West, ever since Aristotle, we have the vegetal soul. It really underlies everything, supports everything, but is barely thought through and really discussed. So this was the starting point for me. Is the principle, therefore, that human beings have at our base the sort of vegetal soul? It's a bit hard to say and hard to think about that on our basis, we you know, we need nourishment and we want to survive. And, and then everything is built up from there. So animals have the vegetal soul, but they also have the animal soul. And we have animal and plant soul. We also have the human side of things as well. Yes, definitely. That was one of the conclusions of my plan thinking, which is that in order to think the meaning of the human, we have to recognize the other than human within ourselves, meaning not only human animality, but also human vegetality. Uh, the vegetal soul that is within us, and that is not only there uh, within us somehow in a free fashion, thriving and growing, but rather has been repressed throughout the history of at least Western cultures. So these capacities for nourishment and reproduction are thought of as the basest capacities, as the crudest and the most material ones that we have to hide or try to minimize and in order to uh, follow the more noble pursuits that would be more spiritual in a sense. So the materiality of a human psyche would be precisely vegetal. And I think that in different ways, fast forward into the 20th century, if we think about psychoanalysis and the way that Freud puts sexuality at the base of what it means to be human, at the basis of human ontology, Freud is really returning to the vegetal soul as the capacity for reproduction in the human and, and sort of tracing its different um, uh, sublimations, but also distortions and repressions, obviously, within the figure of humanity. I mean, it's quite fascinating because in many ways, if you look at evolutionary science, that the earliest forms of life are not even potentially very living by modern life standards. They're only just life or possibly just not life. And then things don't fundamentally change. They kind of add and layer and grow. And so the, the whole components within us, a lot of them are based on the earliest components, just magnified or changed or modified. In mitochondria, for example, inside cells are thought to be a type of organism that became symbiotic inside animal cells. And so it's fascinating that, that Aristotle, pre any of this knowledge of DNA or evolutionary history or anything like that, came up with this concept and managed to sort of tease out the base components 
of what make us living organisms. Yes, yes, definitely. And I think that what is also fascinating is that both the human body and the human psyche are sort of archives of transgenerational and even evolutionary events that are inscribed within all kinds of memory, genetic memory, but also the uh, cultural memory that we are all sort of nourishing ourselves on in order to speak, in order to live, in order to interact with others. And so if this archive is in part vegetal, it's fascinating to think about the meaning of human cultures, of uh, all of these uh, presumably highest spiritual pursuits that remain marked at their foundation by the vegetal, uh, both at the level of psychic life and at the level of material bodily existence. So, I mean, people would probably get upset if you said your cousin was a cabbage, but in many ways... (laughs) It's actually fundamentally true that we do have ancestors, ancient ancestors of cabbages, as our ancient ancestors as well. Uh, Hildegard Bingen, could you explain a little bit about her? And, and she's particularly medieval, which is one of my personal areas of study. So I really want to talk about that and talk about the academic side of monasteries as well and the sort of uh, Western religious tradition. And one of my thoughts is that If you were academic in the medieval period and you didn't have any money, you really only had one option, which was to take holy orders and go to their libraries. So tell me about Hildegard anyway. Yes, absolutely. And Hildegard uh, in particular was really an amazing woman because she was a polymath. She contributed to all kinds of areas of intellectual pursuit, scientific activity. She had a book titled Physica, which is a kind of catalogue of plants, animals, and even mineral stones based on their medicinal properties, based on their spiritual belonging, and, and so on. She also invented her own language called the unknown language, lingua ignota. What period in the medieval world oh, are we yes, talking about? The 12th century. And she was an abbess in the Benedictine order and really a very well-known personality at the time because she corresponded copiously with all the leading church authorities of her age, with popes, with archbishops, with the, and even with simple monks and so on. So her letters are also preserved and make a part of the corpus of her writings. She composed church music, liturgical music as well, and music was much more than just music for her. It was not just instrumental music. She had whole philosophy or theory of music as a kind of cosmological force, as an expression of the resonances or reverberations of different kinds of existence. And the list can go on and on, but you're absolutely right that at the time, this was the replacement or the next best thing to an academic career. So Hildegard was probably the first woman in the history of Europe to have given extensive lecturing tours or sermons throughout <laughs> what is now Germany and the surrounding areas, because people just flocked to listen to her. Uh, she was very well known at the time. and uh, But at the same time, she did not present herself as an academic. She did not present herself as an expert. In fact, in many of her letters, she says, I'm a poor illiterate woman. I mean, here is someone who is a polymath, who invents her own language, writes music, of course, claiming divine inspiration for all of these endeavors, but overtly says, this is not me speaking. This is God speaking through me, which is understandable as a position for a woman uh, in medieval times, uh, in medieval Europe to take, because she would not be taken literally if she were to claim her own authority. So 
Of course, she then presents herself as a vessel for God's word. But at the same time, I think there is more to it than just a strategic choice to present herself as a mouthpiece for God, because she, in a sense, not only writes about and thinks about plants, but she identifies with them, as it were. Just as plants are the media or the mediations between different realms, between the darkness of the soil and the airy expanses of the sky, for instance. So she herself presents herself and her own writings as the channels between the divine and the human. And then she puts herself in the position of plants, not only writing about them, but also identifying with them in a sense. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the position of women in medieval Europe was, well, there were queens and empresses and things. So they were sometimes at the highest levels of nobility. But broadly speaking, it appears to be a very male-dominated era of history, particularly male-dominated, and, and women were often disregarded. But she seems to sort of get around that. She, she, she played this card, which was, it's not me, actually, it's God. And you can't say this is wrong. I mean, as social camouflage goes, hiding behind you know, the word of God is actually truly brilliant in that society. Definitely. And this has been recognized by feminist scholars who study Hildegard's work, and I definitely agree with them. But I have to repeat that I think that there is more to it than just a strategic choice in order to be taken seriously, uh, because she, she really um, puts herself in the place of plants. And it's a double move, actually. She identifies with plants, but at the same time, she treats plants as messengers of a higher existence, of a higher reality. Oh, wow. uh, almost angelic, because this is the meaning of angelos, also in Greek, what we call angel in, in, uh, in English. It's a messenger. It's someone who relays a message. And Hildegard is angelic in that sense. She herself is angelic. She was obviously recognized as a saint and canonized by the Catholic Church as well. But she is angelic in a much more material sense as a representative of the vegetal world, as a mouthpiece I would say, but not so much for God as for the plants and for life itself. What did she think that the plants were communicating, were saying? What was the message they were representing? Did she expand yes. on that? Yes, definitely. The message they represented was the key concept in Hildegard's theology. Uh, and that concept in Latin is viriditas. So I translate this term from Latin as the greening green. So there's greenness to it. You could translate it as greenness, the color green, but it has a much more active dimension as well. So it is not only green on the surface, but it greens. And, and so the chlorophyllic part of plant life is what for Hildegard represents the incredible capacity of finite existence to renew itself, to refresh itself. So it is not enough for uh, existence to be created once by God, but there is a kind of constant recreation, self-recreation of existence. And uh, obviously it permeates all living beings, this capacity, but uh, Hildegard herself identifies plants most closely with this capacity. So the self-refreshing uh, drive or force of existence is most obviously expressed in plants and then distributed to the rest of the living world. And this is her take on it. Would you describe her as an environmentalist at all before her time? Was maintaining and improving the natural world anything to do with her philosophy? Or was it more observing 
Uh, yes, yes, definitely. She didn't want to agree to the idea that uh, humanity was simply placed in the driver's seat, as it were, of creation by God and could decide what to do with the rest of the, the living world. So the Thomist kind of metaphysics was very far from what she was striving toward. And the idea was that um, humans had to learn not only to respect other forms of existence, but to also learn from them. And I think that her own lifelong endeavor was to learn from plants, as it were, uh, to imbibe the self-refreshing capacity of creation from them. And according to her own narrative, this capacity is not set in stone. It is not constant throughout uh, history, human history or natural history. Rather, with the fall, with the original sin, that capacity already drastically diminishes specifically from the human world, but remains strong in plants. And that is why we have to actually look up to plants, not consider them as uh, inferior forms of existence. But after the fall and the expulsion from paradise, plants are much better at viriditas. Yeah. So in her philosophy, humans were cursed and we toil in the ground. And I think it's specifically, I'm, I'm a bit rusty on this, specifically talks about weeds and thorns, doesn't it, as well as sort of almost says there'll be more plants now. And these plants won't necessarily be nice plants. They'll be <laughs> trouble for you. Definitely. And uh, well, Hildegard, uh, in the very Augustinian spirit, obviously has a symbolic dimension to her thinking. So she identifies the uh, weeds and damaging plants with uh, sin itself, with bad deeds and so on, and the beneficial, fructiferous plants with good works. She's following in the footsteps of Augustine. Uh, but what is curious is that uh, even before the fall, humans, according to her reading of uh, that story from Genesis, Adam and Eve are plant-like because they are taken out of the soil. They are created out of the earth, out of the humus of the earth. So they are almost grow out of it like plants do. And humans and plants have that common root, uh, the common origin from the soil that is very important to her. It's not an accident of the biblical narrative, as it were, but an important detail. You can see how she constructed and looked into the sort of core text, which would be the Holy Bible itself, and then sort of expanded upon it and analyzed it. I mean, I've never really thought about the, the myth of Adam being created from the dust of the earth, of course, means they're literally soil which is where plants' roots live, you know, with their heads in the light and the air. You can see how attractive it must have been as a, as a set of ideas to explore for somebody who was interested in this area. Yes, definitely. And then to add to this, Hildegard created a kind of drama of theological existence between two poles, so that viriditas was one of those poles, and the other pole was what she called ariditas, which we could translate as aridness or dryness in English. And so all of uh, life happened between viriditas and ariditas, and uh, sin itself had what uh, was not a moral category for her. It was not a transgression of divine command, but a kind of sinning against life itself, against life's own capacity for self-recreation, which is divine in a sense. God was the first creator, but uh, the capacity of finite existence to recreate itself has a trace of that divinity. So to go against that trace, to try to erase it, to stamp it out, would be the definition of sin for Hildegard, and that would be the aridness. So you can see how what we would now call environmental terms frame and structure her whole thinking of life. 
between the two poles of Ariditas and Viriditas. We could say between the growing desert of Ariditas and the Viriditas of forests, right? And what is done to the forest with deforestation uh, and so on. And the, the growing desert at the geophysical scale would be a reflection of theological realities, according to the Hildegardian scheme of things. So in many ways, she was an environmentalist because she would see the disregard and the destruction of the natural world as a sin against God, for want of a better term, and the encouragement of bounteous and, and healthy plant life as a, as a good thing to do. What do you think she would think of today's world now if she was brought forward, you know, 900 years from where she was? I mean, forget the technology side of it, but what do you think she would perceive as us doing wrong or what would we be doing right as well? Yes, I think that, and in fact, this was one of the uh, main driving forces behind the book that I wrote. Hildegard, not only out of historical interest, historical curiosity, but also in an attempt to ask what we can learn from this person, the medieval Benedictine abbess who lived almost a thousand years ago. What can we learn about the state of the environment today, about our own environmental problems? And it turns out that we can learn really a lot from her. She was already uh, a little bit, um, well, you could say she was somewhat pessimistic about the state of the world in her time, but also optimistic on the other hand. So let me explain how. Uh, She called the world itself a shipwrecked world. So (laughs) existence itself was a kind of shipwreck, a kind of disaster that we are in the midst of, and we're trying to do our best to stay afloat, to survive uh, in this shipwreck of the world uh, itself. But at the same time, she would oppose what in contemporary physics would be called the force of entropy. It does not necessarily mean that the plenitude, the fullness of energy of Viriditas that was there at the beginning is bound to run dry and to be depleted. Precisely because the marvelous capacity of Viriditas is a self-replenishment, a self-recreation, a renewal of that origin. And so for her, it was really a matter of a struggle. Of a, That's why I'm putting it in terms of a drama, but it was really a struggle between two opposing forces of Ariditas and Viriditas, of whether we give in to the despair of a shipwrecked world and allow it to become more and more desert-like, or if we try to support and nourish to the best of our ability the capacity of finite existence to renew and mend and recreate itself, and in that way oppose the the force of Ariditas, right? This is an open kind of question for her. Isn't the fallen world philosophy, was it she skirting dangerously close to Catharism, potentially, in some of her philosophies then? Because I think, I'm not a specialist, I haven't studied this, so forgive me if I get this completely wrong, but I thought that Catharism was about a fallen world and needing to sort of better yourself and achieve enlightenment for what a better world. And her describing the world as a shipwreck, I would imagine she might have trodden on a few toes with that description, perhaps. Is that the case? Uh, Yes, definitely. But at the same time, this is where her whole um, Christian kind of uh, theology and rethinking of the canon comes in, because that is why Christ has to come in order to redeem the shipwrecked world. And the figure of Christ does not escape the 
impetus of vegetalization. So the incredible thing that Hildegard does and that attracted me in the first place also to her work is that she vegetalizes the whole Judeo-Christian canon associating different saints and even the Holy Spirit and uh, the Virgin Mary and Jesus with different plants and parts of plants. So this seemingly monolithic canon is set in motion, starts growing, but also potentially decaying thanks to her efforts. And um, that is why for her, in her own terms, I, I would say, Jesus has to come in order to re- redeem the very capacity of veriditas, the very capacity of existence to have a future, to give itself a future, to recreate itself beyond its uh, finite limitations. And just to give you an example, in her hymns collected in a book titled Symphonia, uh, she associates uh, Jesus with a brilliant flower that blossoms on the greenest branch which is the Holy Mary, right? So Mary is the greenest branch and Jesus is a flower blossoming on it. And together they imbue Viriditas with a fresh drive to continue to go on to uh, resist the uh, entropic force of Viriditas. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So would she be, I mean, she sounds like she is a, an interesting subject of study for feminist positions, because if she's likening Mary to the branch upon which the flower of Jesus, you could argue that the branch is much more important than the flower, which is an interestingly, arguably potentially dangerous thing for her to have suggested at the time. Did she get into trouble at all? As a woman who was powerful and academic and gave sermons and and traveled, obviously, and was presumably very well known at the time, did she have her detractors? Well, she did get in trouble, but for other things, I think that the playful subversions and reversals of gender roles, for instance, that are present in her work, were not really noticed at the time, or perhaps were overlooked, because what she did get into trouble for, for instance, is for burying a heretic on the grounds of her abbey. And as a result, the uh, theological authorities of the time forbade her from having liturgical music during her liturgies. And as a result, she writes an incredible letter, fuming kind of angry letter to the prelates and main who forbade her from doing that, from having music during church services. But in that letter, actually, it's an extremely valuable document because she lays out her whole philosophy of music and why it is much more than just instrumental kind of atmosphere creating device. 
But uh, speaking about gender roles, yes, uh, you, you are also right to point out the reversals that happen with regard to Mary and Jesus. Uh, and the language, if you look at the Latin, at the original Latin in which Hildegard writes, the language is very deliberate, is very carefully calibrated in that regard. So when she talks about the Virgin Mary as the greenest branch, she says that it holds us up and holds Jesus up and carries the flower and, and is erect. So there are all kinds of phallic associations with a branch, while uh, Jesus is associated with a flower, usually a symbol of femininity, right? All of these reversals are there and are uh, sometimes very veiled, as when she would say that our age is the age of women. It's the womenly times, which is supposed to be very critical. It's the times of decline and decadence and decay. But at the same time, she uh, also implies that what is needed is a strong female warrior. And she, she uses that word to come and to, to save the world again, a kind of salvific figure, which would be female. Oh, wow. So she talks about female warrior. So that's, yes. really, that's a really interesting yeah. point of reference for me as well, because... I'm often asked in th certain things I do, what about women fighting? Well, of course they fought if they had to, but we don't have much about it. And of course, Joan of Arc was famously one of the accusations against her was that she cross-dressed, largely politically trumped up probably. But So that's interesting. She actually even draws the concept of a strong female warrior. Yes, she does. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now, green, the colour green, you've mentioned that a few times, and obviously plants, chlorophyll, greenness, the color green must have been incredibly important to her. Is that something we're aware of? Yes. So it must have been very important to her, but also not, not only uh, the physical color green, uh, uh, but, but also the kind of metaphysical reality that it represented, uh, which would be the force that allows life to live beyond its own finite limits. And what I find really interesting is that, of course, the color is one of the most superficial things we can talk about, right? Yes. Uh, so uh, color is right there on the surface. It's the first thing that meets the eye. And presumably philosophers and theologians are supposed to look into the depths of things. So color would be the least important uh, of preoccupations for philosophers and theologians. So even there then to uh, give um, a certain preference or a certain priority to the color green or to any color would have been a kind of revolutionary move compared to the valorization of depth, specifically with the rise of the psychic depths of the soul as a deep source of, uh, again, wishes, desires, uh, inclinations in uh, St. Augustine. And surface is incredibly enough also in the Christian tradition, the surface is not only demeaned and sort of degraded, but also associated with Jewishness, with the Jewish law, which is the law that is edged on stone, uh, the, the letter of the law in its materiality, in its very superficiality, as opposed to the depths of spirit that Christianity associates itself with. And there I have to say that at times Hildegard actually shared the prejudices of the official church against Jewish people in medieval times, but unconsciously she undermined those as well, for instance, by privileging the surface over depth in her adherence to the color green. How was she received in her own time? I mean, you said she traveled widely. Was she considered controversial or was she lauded at the time or was she only sort of discovered after her, her death? 
No, at the time she was already considered to be a sage, not not a sage who is an outcome of formal education, but an uh, an inspired woman, divinely inspired woman, who uh, had uh, incredible visions uh, that she received directly from God, and she uh, nurtured this view of herself even in her letters saying that whatever I write and whatever I say, these are not my words. And even this letter that you are reading now, this is not composed by me, but it is God who is writing through me, right? <laughs> and and uh, I think that this, uh, as, as we mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, this worked incredibly well as a strategy also and gained her a very large following which is not to say that she was without controversy. For instance, when she went against uh, church wishes and gave a proper Christian burial to a heretic on the grounds of her, her abbey and was punished. And when she was punished by the prohibition to play any liturgical music, those who meted out this punishment must have known what it meant to her. Mm. Because any other person would say, okay, I can't play music for a number of months, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But since it was so incredibly important to her, it was it was an attempt really to get at her. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It sounds like it was very carefully calibrated to yeah. make her really angry and uh, punish her. Yeah. And I always also think that um, actually, if we look at Hildegard from a historical perspective, she obviously lived before the Inquisition. And this is something that worked very much in her favor, because if we were just to imagine her living during the Inquisition, I have no doubts that she herself would have been burnt at the stake as a heretic or a witch, because she brought what would have been thought by the Inquisition authorities as the pagan influences into the core of Christianity. So to liken uh, the Son of God to a flower and the Holy Virgin to a branch uh, would not have been looked very kindly upon by Inquisition authorities. Were her writings suppressed at all by the church during that period in history? Were, Were they sort of ignored and then was it discovered more recently? Yes, they were ignored. And actually, she was raised to the status of the doctors of the church, the kind of highest status beyond sainthood, the status of the sages, as it were, of the church, only in 2012 by Pope Benedict XVI, who, of course, came from the same Benedictine order as her, and whose own theological program would have been quite different from Hildegard's. But nonetheless, he was the one who bestowed upon her the status of the doctor of the church only in 2012. So very recently, her work has been fully appreciated by the top bosses of the church, um, only very, very recently. What do you think her teachings can help us learn about the future? Do Do you think there's anything that we can build on philosophically for protecting the environment or anything like that? Yes, uh, I, I think we can really take a lot with us into the future. First of all, the, the the kind of move that vegetalizes realities that seem to be immutable, like Western metaphysics, where uh, perfect being is precisely what does not change, uh, what does neither grows nor decays. And once we introduce the vegetal element into this fictional reality, uh, things start looking very differently uh, from, from then on. This is what I try to do with the canon of Western philosophy, and that's why I recognize the kind of kindred soul in Hildegard, who did the exact same thing almost a thousand years ago, but with regard to the theological tradition in the West. 
So I think that what we can learn from her is uh, this uh, kind of move of jumpstarting vegetal processes is what can get us back to the otherwise stalled processes of metamorphosis and metabolism at the micro level, but also at the planetary level. So we could say that many of the environmental problems today are problems of a stalled metabolism, planetary metabolism. Things are not rotting. It's as if Western metaphysics is not just a set of ideas. It has created the reality that we live in where certain materials exist that are not decomposable, that are not biodegradable, like plastic that, of course, it does decompose, but after 500 years, and for 500 years, it just breaks down into smaller and smaller components called microplastics or uh, uh, nuclear waste, spent nuclear energy that takes uh, hundreds of thousands of years at times to lose its charge and to decay. Mm. Uh, so the ideal fantasy of Western metaphysics has been translated into the environmental nightmare that we're living in today. And so anything, any way of thinking and being in the world and acting that is attentive to and that restarts, recommences these stalled planetary metabolisms can be very helpful going forward. And I think that Hildegard's work is one of those moments. That's wonderful to think that a powerful woman in the 12th century, who was arguably a bit of a maverick kind of thinker, can still inform us today. And I, I think she'd probably be quite pleased that her work was still being referenced and talked about. Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. And I think here we can actually return to the unknown language because not only did she claim that her knowledge came from divine revelation, but she implied that knowledge could not be universal in the sense of being available at all times. Knowledge itself has to be seasonal. It has to be the cycles that plants also obey, right? There's a, there's a time for revelation. And otherwise, lots of subterranean processes have to take place in order for thinking to mature, to ripen before it can flourish out into the world. And so when she writes about her unknown language in one of the letters that she composes, she says that this language, its meaning also will be revealed one day, but not now, not yet, because this is not the right moment. This is not the right moment for the mystery that it keeps. And um, the unknown language had its own alphabet that uh, Hildegard also invented, made of ignota letras or letrae, uh, so the unknown letters. There were 23 of them, and they were, by uh, all kinds of scholarly accounts, they were a mix of Hebrew and Greek letters, but not reproduced, uh, only a kind of an impression that they left in the memory of Hildegard, and then kind of a mix of those rather dissimilar alphabets produced her own uh, unknown way, the, 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 the writing system. Did she write in this language, or is, it, is she talking about it sort of abstractly? She talks about it abstractly. There are a few words in it as well. Uh, and there's only one phrase that is written fully out in, in this language. And it's really quite unclear what the meaning of that phrase is. Uh, so there are all kinds of scholarly guesses and so on. But the phrase itself remains quite mysterious and unknown. <laughs> so there's this mystery of her secret language. So she, she refers to it in her writings, but we don't have any work in that mystery writing or anything no, no except for one sentence that except can sentence. Be, be deciphered by by anyone oh that, that is such a wonderful mystery i love that kind of thing um 
Do you think there is work to be uncovered in that lost language? I think actually a little bit more concretely, there is a lot of work to be done with regard to Hildegard's own writings in Latin, uh, because those are collected in uh, volume 197 of Patrologia Latina from the 19th century. And right now, there are also the more current critical editions of some of her works in the collection that is being published in Belgium. But many of her writings have been untranslated into English, for instance. Others have been translated in an abridged fashion, and uh, still others have been translated, but with very approximate translations, very inexact. So when I was working on my book, I had no other choice but to go back to the original Latin and retranslate many of the bits myself. And so for people who are interested and curious and intellectually motivated by Hildegard's works, uh, there is no better way than to actually go back to the Latin sources that contain lots of unexplored material, lots of treasures, really, in that sense, and then start from there. I think that's absolutely right, because a translator will necessarily bring their own biases when they're looking at a work. I've looked at some, I'm, I'm very poor with Latin, but I've looked at some translations of works on medieval horsemanship. And the words they're using in English are just incorrect Mm. for a particular, and it doesn't make any sense, but if you substitute a different word in English, which was a specialist term in equestrian skills, it suddenly makes sense. And it just shows you that if you want to do your subject the best respect, you need to go back to the originals. You need to go back to the source material and not necessarily rely on other people's interpretations of it which is wonderful, but that sounds like quite a lot of work. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you about that Hildegard. I'm going to look up more about her because it sounds like she's got some very interesting observations, which could help inform me in some of my research as well. And I'm always interested in the human mind in the medieval period. Lots of people are always fascinated by knights in armour and horses and stuff and castles, but the philosophy behind it all is is also worth studying. And especially characters like Hildegard, who are a bit unusual and quite deliberately maverick uh, in many ways. You can unpick a lot more about how society was in a way. Yes, definitely. And uh, specifically, uh, Jason, if you're interested in the way that the human mind worked in medieval times, Uh, There is something that Hildegard has to offer in that respect as well, because she created very complex analogies, not only between different key figures in the Judeo-Christian canon and plants and plant parts, but also between these figures and plant parts and parts of the mind. So the intellect and the will, uh, all of these mental faculties are also grafted onto or mapped onto parts of plants. So to give you an example, for instance, uh, Mary stands for the greenest branch, but the greenest branch is for her the intellect. There again, you have a subversion of the view of women as irrational or somehow not connected to the life of the mind, because the parallel that Hildegard draws is between uh, the Virgin Mary, the greenest branch, and the intellect as the faculty corresponding to the branch. Wonderful. What a wonderful place to finish. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Michael. Um, It's been a a really interesting wander through mental mind states and plants and things. That's been really interesting. It's certainly food for thought. There's quite a lot to go through and digest, actually, in what we've discussed. 
but thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much for your invitation, Jason. My pleasure. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.